Welcome everyone to a new uh, gathering of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks, uh, where this week we have one of our, I would say, furthest away guests uh, ever. Uh, we have Craig Santos Perez, who's Associate Professor in the English Department at University of Hawaii, Manoa. We'll talk about his new book uh, of eco-poetry, so Habitat Threshold. Uh, so I thought I would just leave the floor to Craig. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me today. And I'm, I'm so honored to be part of this book series. Um, my new book, Habitat Threshold, was published last year uh, in March. So right at the beginning of the pandemic for here us in, for, for us here in Hawaii. And so, you know, many of my events were canceled and I haven't traveled since then. And so it's really nice to have these opportunities uh, to connect with with folks around the world and especially in this series where where you're thinking about uh, the environmental humanities uh, my book itself uh, focuses on environmental justice uh, ecology climate change and human animal relations uh, i started writing the poems in about 2014 and uh, coincided with the the time that my first daughter was born and so she makes an appearance in many of the poems uh, as I kind of struggle with uh, my anxieties and, and concerns of, of being a new parent in a time of climate change. And so the poems I'm going to share with you today, at least for, for the first 15 minutes, uh, are actually mainly focused on human-animal relations. And I wanted to, to share these poems uh, thinking about Dolly's work on uh, extinction and, and animal stories. This first poem uh, takes place at the zoo here in Hawaii, which is one of my daughter's favorite places. And I wrote this for World Elephant, World Elephants Day, and also in support of a bill, a legal beer, bill here in Hawaii to ban the sale of ivory. And even though Hawaii is a very small place, um, it actually has a, a really large part of the ivory trade in the US only after uh, New York and California. And so the Hawaii ban was, was very important for these efforts. So I wrote this poem in support of that. Blood Ivory. When we reach the elephant enclosure, I lift our daughter up so she can see them playing in shallow ponds. Look, I say, they love the water just like you. Today, 96 elephants are being massacred across Africa's scarred savanna. Armed poachers surround the herds who stomp, trumpet, and encircle their calves. Bullets, those small human tusks, bite through thick, wrinkled skin. Do the men still feel awe or majesty, or do they only feel their own awful poverty? as they sever the incisors once used to split bark and forage. Warlords will sell this white gold to be carved into jewelry, relics, and art, then smuggled across the planet, our man-made elephant graveyard. This year, 35,000 will be slain. Our daughter waves goodbye to them as we walk towards the exit. Do we build zoos to save what we've sacrificed? 
to display what we dominate or to cage our own wild urge to kill every breathing being. Our daughter plays with a stuffed elephant doll in the gift shop. Look, I say, it has ears, eyes, and a mouth, just like you. She touches its tusks, smiles, then touches her own teeth. So thankfully that, that bill did pass and hopefully it will uh, you know, so continue to support the efforts uh, to ban the ivory trade. Now this next poem takes place actually nearby the, the zoo. It takes place at the Waikiki Aquarium, uh, which is just across the street and is another one of my daughter's favorite places. Uh, this poem is called A Sonnet at the Edge of the Reef. We dip our hands into the outdoor reef exhibit and touch sea cucumber and red urchin as butterfly fish swim by. A docent explains, once a year after the full moon, when tides swell to a certain height and salt water reaches the perfect temperature, only then will the ocean cue coral polyps to spawn in synchrony, a galaxy of gametes which dances to the surface, fertilizes, opens, forms larvae, roots to seafloor, and grows generation upon generation. At home, we read a children's book, The Great Barrier Reef, to our daughter snuggling between us in bed. We don't mention corals bleaching, reared in labs or frozen. And isn't our silence too a kind of shelter? Okay, this next poem takes us uh, from, from the reefs uh, to the forest. And it's dedicated to a native Hawaiian bird uh, called the Kauai O'o, whose song was last heard here in 1987. The poem is titled, The Last Safe Habitat. I don't want our daughter to know that Hawaii is the bird extinction capital of the world. I don't want her to walk around the island feeling haunted by tree roots buried under concrete. I don't want her to fear the invasive predators who slither, pounce, bite, swallow, disease and multiply. I don't want her to see paintings and photographs of birds she'll never witness in the wild. I don't want her to imagine their bones in dark museum drawers. I don't want her to hear their voice recordings on the internet. I don't want her to memorize and recite the names of 77 lost species and subspecies. I don't want her to draw a timeline with the years each was first collected and last sighted. I don't want her to learn about the Kauai O'o who was observed atop a flowering ohia tree calling for a mate day after day, season after season because he didn't know he was the last of his kind until one day 
he disappeared forever into a nest of avian silence. I don't want our daughter to calculate how many miles of fencing is needed to protect the endangered birds that remain. I don't want her to realize the most serious causes of extinction can't be fenced out. I want to convince her that extinction is not the end. I want to convince her that extinction is just a migration to the last safe habitat on earth. I want to convince her that our winged relatives have arrived safely to their destination, a wondrous island with a climate we can never change and a rainforest fertile with seeds and song. Okay, this next poem is uh, titled Echo Location and is dedicated to a whale that scientists named J35 or Talequa. And I wrote this poem a, a couple of years ago when the story of this well uh, reached here in Hawaii and, and perhaps there in Norway as well. Um, she gave birth to a calf, but unfortunately the, the calf died, and yet she continued to carry uh, the dead calf for weeks. And it was just a really, um, just a really tragic story. And, and so I wrote this poem as we were kind of following the news of her, her journey. Echolocation. My wife plays with our daughter while I cook dinner. On the news, we watch you struggle to balance dead calf on your rostrum. Days pass. We drive our daughter to preschool and to the hospital for vaccinations. You carry your child's decomposing body a thousand nautical miles until every wave is an elegy, until our planet is an open casket. How do you say sorry in your dialect of sonar calls and whistles? What is mourning but our shared echo location? Today you let go so her body could fall and feed others. Somehow you keep swimming. We walk to the beach so our daughter can build sandcastles. May she grow in the wake of your resilience. May we always remember Love is our wildest oceanic instinct. Now my final poem is, is actually a call and response poem. Um, so I'm gonna maybe ask if, if Dolly can unmute yourself and, and help me with this poem. Okay, so uh, since we're in the ocean, I wanted to end on a water poem. Uh, this poem is, is called Chanting the Waters, and it was written a few years ago in solidarity, in solidarity with the Standing Rock tribe uh, when they were protecting, uh, this is in, in, in the U.S., when they were protecting their lands from a pipeline that was being built. 
And so there was a, an event here in Hawaii to raise awareness and, and money for, for that struggle. And I wrote this poem in response. So uh, you'll hear me re refer to uh, pipelines, oil pipelines, but then I also connect that to some of the water struggles uh, here in Hawaii, the Pacific and around the world. And so this, that, this poem is also dedicated to, to all water protectors. And now the response is when I say the word say, and then uh, I'm gonna ask you to say water is life. Make sense? Okay, chanting the waters. Say, water, water is, is life. life. Because our bodies are 60% water. Because my wife labored for 24 hours through contracting waves. Because water breaks forth from shifting tectonic plates. Say, water, water is, is life. Because amniotic fluid is 90% water because she breathed and breathed and breathed, because our lungs are 80% water, because our daughter crowned like a new island. Say, water, water is life. Because we tell creation stories about water, because our language flows from water, because our words are islands writ on water, because it takes more than three gallons of water to make a single sheet of paper. Say, water, water is life. life because water is the next oil, because 180,000 miles of US oil pipelines leak every day, because we wage war over gods and water and oil, say, water, water is, is life. Because our planet is 70% water, because only 3% of global water is fresh, because it takes two gallons of water to refine one gallon of gasoline, because it takes 20 gallons of water to make a pound of plastic, because the Ameri average American water footprint is 2,000 gallons a day. Say, water is life. Because a billion people lack access to drinking water because women and children walk four miles every day to gather clean water and deliver it home. Say, water, water is life. Because our bones are 30% water. Because if you lose 5% of your body's water, you become feverish. Because if you lose 10% of your body's water, you become immobile. Because our bodies won't survive a week without water. Say, water, water is life. Because corporations, privatize, dam, and bottle our waters, because plantations divert our waters, because animal slaughterhouses consume our waters, because pesticides, chemicals, lead, and waste poison our waters, say, water, water is life. Because they bring their bulldozers and drills and drones, because we bring our feathers and lay and sage and shells and canoes and hashtags and totems, because they call us savage and primitive and riot, because we bring our treaties and the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, because they bring their banks and politicians and dogs and paychecks and pepper spray and bullets, because we bring our songs and schools and prayers and chants and ceremonies, because we say stop, keep the oil in the ground, because they say shut up and vanish, because we are not moving, because we bring all our relations and all our generations and all our live streams. Say, 
water is life. Because our drumming sounds like rain after drought echoing against taut skin. Because our skin is 60% water. Say, water is life. Because every year millions of children die from waterborne diseases. Because every day thousands of children die from waterborne diseases. Because by the end of this poem, five children will die from waterborne diseases. Say, water is life. Because our daughter loves playing in the ocean. Because someday she'll ask, where does the ocean end? Because we'll point to the dilating horizon. Say, water is life. Because our eyes are 95% water. Because we'll tell her ocean has no end. Because sky and clouds lift ocean. Because mountains embrace ocean into blessings of rain. Because ocean, sky, rain fills aquifers and lakes. Because ocean, sky, rain, lake flows into the Missouri River. Because ocean, sky, rain, lake, river returns to the Pacific and connects us to our cousins at Standing Rock. Because our blood is 90% water. Say, water is life. Because our hearts are 75% water. Because I'll teach our daughter my people's word for water, Hanum, Hanum, Hanum. So the sound of water will always carry her home. Say, water is life. Say, water is life. Say, water is life. Beautiful. Thank you so much for, your, for that response. Uh, thank you, everyone, for, for listening to these poems. This is just a little uh, a snippet of the book overall. And you know, happy to share more about some of the other poems and themes. And uh, happy to, to address any other questions that, that you might have. But thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Craig. I mean, that was wonderful. Um, and as we said, folks, if you have uh, questions for Craig, just indicate that in the chat and we'll be happy to call on you. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things that really strikes me in your uh, presentation and talking about this book, of course, is, is your daughter and the effect that that has had on, on your poetry, right? She shows up over and over again. And what's interesting is in your uh, earlier three books of, of poems um, about Guam, um, you know, you in essence are the child um, and you're talking about your father and your grandfather and the ways in which tradition uh, get carried on. So I wanted to ask you just to reflect a little bit about the, the role of family then in these environmental stories, what it means to you. Right. Yeah, I love that question. Um, you know, definitely family is, is so important in, in Pacific Island cultures. And, you know, the idea, of course, of extended family and, and kinship relations in general. And so I, I've been thinking a lot about that throughout my, throughout my writing life. And in my earlier books, as you mentioned, I, I write a lot about my grandparents' stories. Uh, as a way to honor my elders and to kind of record, um, you know, their stories. At the time I was writing them, I didn't have kids, but, you know, I did hope that, you know, now that uh, I do have kids that they can in the future read my books and get to know their grandparents a little bit more. Uh, 
Uh, same with my parents. I, I tell some of their, their life stories uh, in my previous work. You know, again, as a way to honor them and to um, kind of write, write my genealogy uh, onto the page. And so, you know, this new book, you know, emerged when I became a parent. And, you know, now one of my biggest concerns is just thinking about the, the world that they're inheriting. And, you know, so many environmental issues that they're going to have to deal with as, as they get older. And it was, it's just really scary. And so the poems became a way to, to help me process those emotions and anxieties. And then to think as well about the importance of, you know, not only my immediate and extended family, but thinking about, you know, cultivating kinship with, with all, all beings and all things and thinking about larger, uh, more than human relations and entanglements that we have, um, you know, thinking, about the importance of, of seeing, you know, the so-called other or, you know, so-called animals, you know, not as separate beings, but actually as family and as relatives and, and even as elders. And so that kind of, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. That really brings it out in, in it's a thread that's in all the books. That's really uh, close to my, to my heart and to my culture. And I think the other thing that really shows here is, um, you know, the issue of language. I mean, you had it much more so in the first uh, three books where you use um, native language that you, you know, that your parents and grandparents and the, the heritage of that language. But you had it here in this poem about water is, is life, right? Hanum. And, and the word, let me teach the word um, that water is. Uh, to my child. And so I was wondering how, how you think about the language use and what words you use to describe things. And, and is there a tension between, you know, the native language that you're using from, from Guam and English that you're writing this poetry in um, and how you, you play with that tension? Yes, thank you. You know, fortunately, my native language and many Pacific and indigenous languages are, are endangered uh, right now. And so, you know, there's a similarity between the endangerment of, of indigenous languages and of course the loss of, of environmental biodiversity. Um, and so, you know, in my own writing, I do try to, more so my earlier work, but bring into the poems, uh, you know, my own indigenous language and, and in the last part of that little, of that poem I read, uh, you know, thinking about teaching my daughter, um, our people's word for water. And I think, you know, that desire to revitalize the language runs parallel with, with our desire to, uh, you know, to maintain habitats and, and even to restore or revitalize habitats that have been uh, threatened and endangered by by colonialism. So I think it you know it is important to to have those moments even in in the poem about the native Hawaiian bird to actually use the the native Hawaiian name for the bird, and our birds too here throughout the Pacific are are also endangered. Many also are extinct, and so uh, you know 
using their actual names is, I think, a way of honoring, honoring their heritage and also a form of remembrance. And sadly, for, for many things, a, a, a memorial itself in language. And so that's kind of how I, I think about those connections and the importance of literature in, in that memorialization, remembrance, and, and hopefully revitalization. Well, your comment there about revitalization fits nicely with uh, Micah's question that she posted in the chat, which is about the role of hope. So especially in this context of, of raising a family and of dealing with, well, climate change and habitat destruction and extinction, how, how do you think about hope when we're at the habitat threshold? Yeah, great question. Um, it's definitely has been, has been difficult um, with everything that's, especially since, since 2014 when I started writing this book. You know, it seems like every year has been the hottest in history. Um, every year, you know, the seas out here are rising, glaciers are, are melting. And, you know, there's just been so many natural disasters or environmental disasters that, you know, I started, I've been starting to think of hope more as, as a verb, something that, you know, we have to do. Um, as well as something that we, we have to cultivate. Um, you know, in, in the poem about um, the whale echolocation, you know, I talk about love in that poem as, as being you know, our wildest oceanic instinct. And I actually have a new poem, which is not in this book, but it's, it's about hope. And I kind of riff off those lines um, to describe hope as our most buoyant uh, oceanic muscle. And so thinking about, um, you know, again, kind of exercising that muscle of, of, of hope and thinking about hope as being buoyant, as something that like floats and is able to, to keep us afloat during very, tumultuous, turbulent pandemic times. Uh, that's kind of how I, I've been thinking about hope. Uh, there is moments of hope and joy and love uh, and maybe even some laughter in, in this book as well, because I think that emotion is really important to keep us, um, keep us motivated to continue to struggle to protect uh, you know, our sacred lands and waters and, and to continue to raise our children and, and to, you know, to make the best lives we can in this moment. I want to follow up on that question, actually, because um, I'm wondering a bit about um, you know, action and activism in relation to what you, you've written. So you, you described how uh, you had a, the elephant poem was in response to this debate about this new bill. So in a way, that's an, you could consider kind of this intervention. You want this poem to change something with the world. And I think that's also a part of a, a challenge in environmental humanities at large. I mean, we do want the work that we do to change something in the world. But exactly how that happens is, is tricky. So how has your thinking on, on this question of, of changing the world through eco-poetry uh, and environmental humanities work in general changed over time? 
Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, for that particular poem, I had that same same response. And so what I ended up doing was actually submitting the poem to a, a local newspaper here in Hawaii. And, and thankfully they actually decided to publish the poem and it was online. And so, you know, I could share it on social media. And of course the, the newspaper can share it through their media network. And I was really happy to see that it, it uh, got a, a strong, a wide readership just in terms of, you know, numbers of hits and shares. And so I was really happy that I can, I could um, propose kind of a, a new form of, of thinking about the issue in a more creative way, in a more human way, and in a way that maybe connected the issue locally here in Hawaii, which of course, you know, elephants are not native here, but connecting, you know, what's happening here to, uh, you know, the, the situation of elephants around the world. And so, I think it's imperative for, uh, you know, both environmental poets, writers, and, and of course scholars to to do what we can to put our work into the public discourse. And so that was one example. I've also uh, performed my poems at like activist events here in Hawaii. So, you know, I performed during the the big climate march. Uh, a few years ago, I, I often perform at, at other environmental, you know, either protests that are out in the street, or I've also performed work at the at the annual uh, Hawaii Environmental Conservation um, Conference that happens every year. It's the largest on the island, and so I've been really happy to see how how open and willing the environmental movement is to the creative arts and to the humanities. And I, I really love, you know, whenever I see poets and musicians and painters, uh, you know, lend our talents to raising awareness about environmental issues, uh, you know, finding creative ways towards uh, environmental literacy, and then also, uh, you know, creating more human and, and creative forms of climate communication, which all of which I think is really important, whether it's in the street or online in public media or in, in the classroom. That's, uh, I mean, I think that's such an important call for us as scholars to you know, think about these ways to make what we're doing in, into the public view and, um, and make a difference. And one of the, the areas that you've really commented a lot on in your poetry, both in this collection um, which I think is is very situated in Hawaii, um, you know, Habitat Threshold and your previous books, which are very much situated in Guam, um, is the issue of colonialism and uh, the colonial impact both on the peoples and on the environment. And so I, I, Magnus had a, a question about that. So you know, your poems on Hawaiian colonial history and how do you see the nature culture relations um, playing out in that poetry? So I thought I'd let you comment a bit on that. Yes, great question. So much of, uh, you know, environmental injustice here in Hawaii and Guam and the Pacific is rooted in, in the history of colonialism and of course it's, it's ongoing uh, impacts and legacy. And so, 
for example, my homeland of Guam, uh, a small island in the northwestern Pacific, 30% uh, of our landmass is occupied by the US military, so like military bases. And over the past 100 years, it has caused just on immeasurable amounts of contamination to our lands and waters, which has then led to really high rates of, of cancer in my people. And so that's one uh, topic that I write about a lot in my previous books. Uh, here in Hawaii, similarly, militarism is a big issue. There are many military bases here as well. The island I live on, uh, Oahu, is about 25% occupied by military bases. Um, another major uh, factor in environmental destruction is tourism as well, again, rooted in colonialism. Uh, the tourism industry is has a really large environmental impact. And, and so I, I've written poems about that as well. And uh, as some of the poems ha have uh, expressed, it's impacted a lot of native species. Uh, bird species throughout the Pacific um, have been you know, pushed towards extinction by not only tourism and militarism, but uh, urban development and overpopulation, deforestation. Uh, back home in Guam, one of the main issues was the introduction of invasive brown tree snakes, which have devastated our native bird population. And, and of course, the snakes arrived on Guam uh, as stowaways aboard military uh, ships. And so that's another connection to colonialism. And so I tried to draw these complicated entanglements and histories in my work uh, in a way that's maybe a little bit more digestible uh, in a short poem. And so, you know, I think it's important though to do that because, you know, as we talk about environmental issues, we have to also talk about colonialism and imperialism and then other things like racism, of course. And so that's, you know, that's how I, I, I try to write about those topics. I have other poems that are in a future book that are about other issues here in Hawaii as well. And so, you know, thank you for that question. And, and also thank you, Dolly, for, for having read all of my previous books as well. That's, that's really cool. Yes, they're, they're actually available <laughs> to buy from the bookseller, you know, one of the Norwegian online booksellers. So that's, that's <laughs> um, crazy. So have, they're, they're, they're great. Um, one of the questions that I want to ask that I think follows nicely on that and connects with a question um, that uh, Harvest Chardon had about um, the role of orality, which has to do with your sources. So both this, this, one of the things that I notice about your poems is how they're very rooted in your reading of, of sources, um, both of scholarship. So you have footnotes in, in poems, for example, um, that, you know, cite things, uh, your reading of the legal texts, um, your, but then also there's kind of found um, texts like about the tourism brochures or you know, information in a hotel room um, and then connecting with then oral stories, oral histories that are passed down to you. So how, how do you think about putting all those sources together um, and the ways that you, you handle them? Yes, I love this question. And 
I hope you're you're staying warm out there uh, in London. <laughs> Looks like it's snowing. Um, well, first off, orality is, is really important. You know, where where I grew up, uh, the, the fondest memories I have is is just sitting around with my family and listening to my elders talk story to each other. And you know, usually everyone's sitting in a, cir a circle, and they're they're all uh, you know talking sometimes at the same time. <laughs> and I, I just love listening to you know, their, their storytelling patterns and, and some of the, the phrases you might, they might use and just listening, um, you know, outside of that, listening to more formal uh, oral chants and, and oral tales, uh, something I, I always loved as a child. And so I tried to replicate some of those uh, patterns and aesthetics of orality in my own work. Um, so, you know, the last poem I read was try to have a chant-like structure to it. Now, in terms of uh, connecting that to research and, and genealogical knowledge, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm also an academic, and so I do a lot of reading and research, and sometimes it gets very tiresome uh, on, on my imagination. And so what I'll try to do to, to keep myself creative is to take all of that research and to weave it into poems and to find more creative uses uh, for you know both historical information but also uh, for other kinds of texts that I might be reading and so sometimes I'll actually like collage uh, quotes from from history books or from from certain archival documents uh, or even tourism brochures which I've done in poems before and so to me, what I like about that is, is creating this uh, kind of multi-archival poetry that also weaves together different kinds of, of sources and, and discourses and, and rhetorics uh, to create a, this kind of complex interweaving as, as a, a different way of, of telling history and, and story. Then I often uh, juxtapose that to uh, oral stories from my own family. And so you'll kind of like hear my grandfather's voice woven into a quotation from a history book, woven into uh, a passage from, you know, an archival document from like the 17th century. And, and then my, my grandfather's voice will come back in and then maybe I'll quote from like a Catholic prayer or something like that. And so, you know, for me, I just really love poetry that has a kind of documentary quality to it, but also is, is kind of avant-garde. Um, the poems I read today are not those kinds of poems, but that's, those are more from, from my previous books. Gabriella had a question. Gabriella, did you want to ask that? I'll unmute you. Sure. Um, yeah, I was, I, I spent some time in Australia. So, and I really fell in love with a lot of the way that they tell their stories and the different um, indigenous groups and, and native peoples have their own stories to tell in particular ways. And it takes such a wide variety of art forms. And so I've been lucky to be able to acquire some of the art to have the artists tell their stories to me on a regular basis. So I was wondering, and I sort of noticed the art in behind you, 
And so I was wondering, yeah, and I'm like, those are awesome. And I was just sort of wondering your how and if you collaborate with other um, groups of people and first peoples about sharing their stories, their storylines. And I think you answered it a little bit, but I was wondering if you might be able to go into a little bit more detail about that. And then, you know, now that poetry is hot, maybe you'll make it to the White House or maybe (laughs) the governor's office. I just figured I'd (laughs) That's wonderful. Well, I was... um... Thanks. thanks for sh- yeah thanks for sharing that story uh, I was actually in Australia as well I think about two years ago um, I gave a reading at the the Sydney Environment Institute which is doing amazing work also in the environmental humanities and I was so inspired you know by all the the indigenous writers there and and storytellers uh, and I didn't study the art as much <clears throat> the visual arts you know but uh, I know that definitely the storylines and, and dream works and, you know, those, you know, that kind of indigenous knowledge making is, is so important, especially given all they're going through with, with the wildfires there. Um, and I think that, you know, they do really need to ter- turn to indigenous knowledge to, I think, you know, in order to kind of manage and live with fire in, in new respectful ways. Um, so that's been really inspirational to me. I, I've also studied uh, more formally with my doctoral work, uh, Native American and First Nations Canada uh, literatures. And what I love about it is there's, you know, every tribe, of course, has their own uh, storytelling traditions and styles and things like that. But there is so much trans-Indigenous uh, connections and similarities you know, in Turtle Island and here across the Pacific. And I'm sure, you know, even just looking at global indigenous cultures. And so to me, it's, I, I just try to learn from, from everything that I read and to be in solidarity with other indigenous writers who are, you know, writing about similar things that I'm writing to, but just different contexts. And so, you know, I've been inspired by, by all that work and I definitely, um, I actually like cite some of many native writers in my own poetry as epigraphs. And actually later this month, I'm doing a, a conversation with, with a native poet, uh, Joy Harjo, who is uh, the US Poet Laureate. And so you know, I'm looking forward to, to talking more with her about the connections between Native, Ameri- native American literature and, and Pacific Islander literature, you know, along the lines of like indigenous uh, indigenous literary traditions and, and genealogies. Yeah, thank you. One of the other things that, um, you know, that one really can't get when you're doing poetry reading as well is the visual effect of poems, right? So in this um, collection, Habitat Threshold, you have a number of, I mean, first of all, a number of graphs, right? You use um, the IPCC data, you use things to show visually, um, you know, environmental change. And then, of course, you show visually uh, the poems and the, the, the way you make line breaks or, you know, my favorite example of this, the, the Silence Spring Haiku, which let's see if I can put it where people can see on the screen. I mean, it's, it's 
you know, very split in the lines. And then this quote from Rachel Carson um, at the end on, um, so I was wondering how you think about the visual nature of poems, right? So you talked about the oral nature and oral storytelling, um, but but how do you, yeah, envision them as a, as, as a also a layout and, and how they communicate with that? Yeah, I definitely love the, the visual aspects of, of poetry, you know, as well as the, the oral aspects. And, you know, in my poems, I, I always try to find the form that embodies the content in some ways uh, and that adds like deeper meanings to the poem itself. And so, you know, the Silent Spring haiku you talk about, uh, I try to kind of shape the poem so that it, it resembles kind of like a wilting flower uh, because that poem is, is all about, uh, you know, the loss of bees and, and therefore the loss of pollinators and then what kinds of, um, you know, de further death and wilting that's gonna cause to, to other plants. Um, I have other poems that, that maybe take different shapes on the page to, to highlight the meaning of the poem. And so one example is, is the Blood Ivory poem about elephants. Uh, there's a line that, that it's just information that says that 96 elephants are, are being killed every day across the world. And so in organizing that poem, I, I decided to make the stanzas to be nine and six. And then the second stanza is also like nine and six. So that number becomes you know, part of the form of the poem itself. Um, and then the last poem I read, Chanting the Waters, that whole poem is italicized. The lines are much longer and they kind of flow back and forth on the page to kind of embody the movement of, of like a river, the fluidity of water. And so to me, if I could find like something in the poem that will help me kind of shape the poem and, and so that the form itself has meaning to it. That's kind of what I tried to go for. Um, you know, then there are other visual visual elements like grass and things like that. And I also just like to be creative and add some different elements to the text. Uh, in this particular book, you know, so much of environmental and, and climate change communication is graphs and data and scientific writing. So I wanted to bring that into the poem so that the poems can serve as counterpoint, right? As actual stories and in particular, like, you know, human stories and Pacific stories. And of course the stories of a new parent, uh, you know, juxtapose that with these graphs and data that don't really show us uh, these kind of understories, these other narratives. Uh, and then to maybe come back to, um, you know, I, I missed the last part of Gabriella's question about collaborating with artists. Uh, so maybe if I could connect that to this question about visuals. Uh, I've been lucky that uh, for at least one of these poems in the book, uh, it's called Praise Song for Oceania, it's a post poem about the ocean. And I was lucky to collaborate with a native Hawaiian uh, filmmaker who has spent a lot of time on, on native Hawaiian uh, traditional canoes here. And he's a documentary filmmaker, but he transformed that poem into a beautiful film um, 
And you could actually find it on, on YouTube and the internet if you want to check it out. And, you know, so that poem film was actually shown at a bunch of film festivals. It was featured on the United Nations World Oceans Day online portal. And, you know, it circulated so much more than my poem ever could, I think, because it's a film, because it's visual. And I think having those visuals uh, just gives the poem so much more impact. Um, and then, of course, a larger uh, global circulation. So if you're interested, again, it's called Praise Song for Oceania. And you could watch the video, it's just five minutes, and it's really beautifully done. Thank you. What a great recommendation. Um, Micah had another question um, here. She wanted to know about how you located the first few poems that you read. So the location of the poem and how placing it in a, in a place matters to you. And how do you strike a balance between that best, you know, very specific location of an experience and of course, the universality of experience of your readers who, who right, haven't been there um, potentially or most likely and this global reach of the impact, right? Of the environment, sea level rise, habitat loss. So how do you balance between that location and you know, the local and the global? Yeah, yeah great question. Uh, definitely an important one for, for so many environmental writers I know, right? It's, you know, first and foremost that we kind of honor the place that we live and, and we, we write place and we learn the stories and histories and uh, you know, indigenous names of, of the places where we are. And so, you know, for me, writing locally is so important. And, but also then, you know, thinking uh, across scales, uh, connecting what's happening locally uh, in, you know, these place-based poems, but then connecting them globally or, or on a planetary scale. And so for me, it's less about balance and more about uh, kind of articulating the entanglements between the local and the global, between place and planet, and across uh, multiple scales. And even those scales, I think, uh, are also about time, right? Uh, you know, writing not only about the present, what's happening now, but about the past, and then, of course, uh, imagining into the future. And so, you know, time and space for me is so important as a writer, and then to, you know, to try to write those complexities in, in narrative and lyric form that will also be compelling to a reader uh, and emotionally resonant. And, you know, at least for me, the most emotionally resonant is usually, you know, the simple domestic family, very personal stories, right? You kind of get a glimpse into, into my own life. Um, and it's, it's very, you know, as real and honest and vulnerable and intimate as I can make it, but then also to, to make the connection between, uh, you know, the, the global and the more universal and the international. So perhaps then the reader can connect you know, feel a connection to wherever they may be, even if they've never been to Hawaii or the Pacific, even if they've never met me uh, in real life before, uh, at least we could feel that kind of intimate connection across uh, time and space. 
and so that that to me is really the power of literature and the humanities and, and the arts is is to create that moment of of connection and intimacy and perhaps uh, develop a sense of empathy and care and connection and relation to the other that we may never meet and to create maybe a sense of love even for places that we've never been to before. And, you know, for cultures that we have no, no blood connection to. And so that's, that's what I try to do. Uh, often fail at that because it is so complicated and entangled, but I think it's, it's a challenge that all writers need to embrace during these, these times where, you know, we have to think at these, at these scales and, and connections. All right, so we're approaching the end of our time now. So I just want to thank everyone for great questions and also the great reflections from, from Craig over these questions. Uh, and I wonder if we could ask you if, if you'd like to read another poem just to, to close it off because it was so great to, uh, to hear some, uh, some of your poems. <laughs> you on the spot sure, I, I know I was not prepared for this. Let me uh, pull up a file here. Well, thank you as I'm pulling up these poems. Uh, you know, thank you so much again for having me. Thankful, thank you for your really thoughtful, your really thoughtful questions. Um, I think since I, I kind of ended the discussion talking about empathy and connection across borders, I'll end with this poem from the book, it's called Care. And it was written a few years ago for World Refugee Day. And here in Hawaii, we, we had another uh, solidarity event uh, for the Syria refugee crisis. I've never been to Syria before and only you know, knew what was going on by watching the news like many others. Uh, but I wrote this poem you know, so that I could share it at this event and kind of express what, what it made me feel, especially thinking about how many children were impacted by what happened there and how many died, um, you know, drowning in, in the waters out there. Care. Our daughter wakes from her nap and cries. I pick her up press her against my chest and whisper, daddy's here, daddy's here. Here is the island of Oahu, 8,500 miles from Syria. But what if Pacific trade winds suddenly became flames and shrapnel indiscriminately barreling towards us? What if shadows cast upon our windows aren't plumeria tree branches, but soldiers and terrorists marching. Daddy's here, daddy's here, I whisper. Would we reach the Mediterranean in time? Am I strong enough to straighten my legs into a mast balanced with the pull and drift of the currents? Am I brave enough to bear her across the razor wires of foreign countries and racial hatred. Could I plead, please help us. Please just let us pass. Please 
we aren't suicide bombs. Could I keep walking if my feet crack like halabi pepper fields after five years of drought, after this drought of humanity? Daddy's here, daddy's here. Trains and buses rock back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to detention centers. But what if our desperate boat capsizes? Could I inflate my body into a buoy to hold her above rough waves? Daddy's here, daddy. Will drowning be the last lullaby of the sea? Or will we carry each other towards the horizon of care? Thank you. That was powerful uh, ending too. So again, thank you all for coming uh, and thank you, Craig, also. Thank you, everybody. Please stay safe and, and take care of yourselves. <laughs>